This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. You guys, how important is sleep temperature? It's everything to me. And this is where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Its mission is to elevate the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. It's designed for one or two sleepers. So if your partner likes to sleep at a different temperature or you only need it for one side of the bed, it still works. I just put this on top of my existing mattress and voila. So whether you're dealing with night sweats or simply seeking a better night's rest, Chili Pad is here to transform your existing mattress into a sanctuary of cool, relief, and comfort. Visit www.sleep.me slash FTL to get your Chili Pad and save up to $315 with code FTL. This offer is exclusively available for the love listeners, only for a limited time. So order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with your sleep trial. So visit www.sleep, that's S-L-E-E-P, dot M-E slash F-T-L, because every woman deserves to wake up feeling refreshed and ready to conquer the day ahead. Education is freedom work. Education is how we increase the capacity of folks to realize their full potential. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with me, Jen Hatmaker. Today, we are talking about what it means to be Black in the education system in America with author and social justice scholar, Dr. Monique Morris. Hey, everybody, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome, 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 welcome to the show. We are in a really important and what is shaping up to be profound series called For the Love of Black Lives. As I've mentioned, if you've been kind of listening to the series as a podcast crew, we just looked at each other and said, this cultural moment of racial reckoning is so important and full of so many important conversations that 
we want to also be a part of, that we want to highlight, that we want to learn from. And so we knew for sure that we wanted to center this in kind of an extended series. And today, gosh, today is such a good episode. I'm really, really happy that you're here because we're turning our attention to education. And we're going to think about what it's like to be a Black child student in America trying to learn and grow and flourish like every kid and ultimately create a space where they can find a community where they belong, where they are cherished, where they can contribute. So there's a reason, and we're going to discuss this at length, that you've heard the phrase school to prison pipeline, which is a very real construct in our country. And usually this phrase is applied to communities of color where children are more likely to be funneled out of public schools and into the juvenile and criminal justice systems, way more so than children in white communities. The data is very clear on this. Many of the children who enter the school to prison pipeline have had harsh, adverse experiences growing up that affect their physical and mental health and in turn affect the way they learn. And so rather than being nurtured, cared for, attended to, rather than having their trauma addressed, their pain addressed, they find themselves so often in zero tolerance policies and sent to alternative schools where they don't receive the resources and care they need there either. Or even worse, they are arrested for the disruption and sent to juvenile detention center. And guys, this starts early. We talk about this, but this, is, this starts in kindergarten. Like we see six and seven-year-old kids of color arrested inside their schools for taking a piece of candy off their teacher's desk. Just absurd overreaction to normal childhood development. So we are going to absolutely discuss how so many kids of color are eventually pushed out of school and into the gears of the justice system disproportionately. In fact, according to National Black Women's Justice Institute analysis of civil rights data collected by the U.S. Department of Education, Black girls are seven times more likely than their white peers to be suspended, and black girls are three times more likely to be referred to juvenile court than their white and Latinx peers. And according to today's guest, this is a narrative we absolutely can change. She is changing it. We can change this by transforming our schools from places where black girls and boys receive punishment disproportionately into places where black girls and boys can receive healing. Because when we are healed, when we are safe, when we are loved, then we can learn. It's just that simple. So Dr. Monique Morris is who we have today. Lucky us. And I'm very serious. Lucky us. She's an award-winning author and social justice scholar. She has three decades of experience in the areas of education, civil rights, juvenile, and social justice. She founded the National Black Women's Justice Institute, and she's now on the board, an organization that works to transform public discourse on the criminalization of Black girls and their families. So ultimately, Dr. Morris says, her work is about using research and narratives to challenge actions and structures of oppression as she meets people where they are on their journey toward freedom and flourishing. Also, which she's going to mention, she loves Prince like a lot. So she's good people, right? 
Dr. Morris is an incredible author of books, tons of scholarly articles. Her latest works are Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues, Education for the Liberation of Black and Brown Girls, as well as Push Out, The Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools, which she also made into a documentary. No big deal. She can do everything. Dr. Morris is an expert on understanding the educational challenges that Black women and girls face. In Push Out, she explores what facilitates school push out for Black girls and how to reverse those practices. This conversation is supercharged and interesting, and it's both daunting to face the facts, but also really encouraging to hear what's possible. Dr. Morris really discusses her work and what she has seen and what she is helping to create to incredible results. So this is a good one, you guys. This is a good one. This is where we start in the origins as early as we can when the kids are still kids, right? This is the place to reverse harm and discrimination and bias and punishment and turn it into love and possibility and wholeness. Okay. This is a good one. I'm so pleased to share my conversation with the very brilliant Dr. Monique Morris. Dr. Morris, Welcome to the For the Love podcast. I feel so just really honored to get to sit here for the next bit and talk to you. Thank you so much for saying yes to this. Of course. Thank you. Thanks for doing this and having me on. Yeah, your work is really powerful. Really, really an incredible body of work you have brought to bear on this earth. I've told my listeners kind of kind of high level it for them about who you are. But I wonder right here out of the gate, I'd love to hear you talk a little more about the work that you do because you are the definition of a multi-hyphenate. You write, you speak, you've started organizations that do important research and advocacy work. You're a documentary filmmaker. I mean, you got a lot of buckets. Can you talk in sort of general terms really about about your work and kind of what brought you to this work, what brought you to this table, and the overarching theme that drives what you do through all these multidisciplinary platforms. Well, thanks for reminding me that I don't sleep enough. (laughs) (laughs) That's got to be true. got to be true. You know, I, I would have to say, I think I came to this world really with an understanding that I would be needed to participate in conversations about equity and justice in a way that is, I think, not you know, sort of cursory to what I do, but essential to what I do. I remember, you know, I sort of grew up, I'm from San Francisco, California, and I grew up in a city that's very different than the city it is today, that included a family that talked to me a lot about the need to repair harms of the past, to explore the vestiges of slavery, to understand that poverty and some of the conditions that I was deeply concerned about as a young person were linked to these structural inequalities that also played out by race and gender. And we didn't really have language for it, and I didn't really understand what was happening, except that I wanted to be a part of, you know, sort of dealing with that. But I also... You know, sort of had this way of understanding, you know, who I am and, and what I'm supposed to do, I think, a little differently because my mother would constantly talk about some of these conditions and I was surrounded in a, you know, by people 
who were trying to make meaning and sense of their own conditions in ways that, you know, would call me to question why some people had access to certain things and why some people didn't and why it seemed to be aligned so closely with our racial identity. And so, you know, I think I don't remember a time when I wasn't concerned about this. That said, you know, I think that, you know, my work is really about trying to live out what I refer to in you know, some of my lectures and discussions as Dr. Martin Luther King's you know, sort of call to us around the demands of justice. He has this very powerful quote that he gave us in 1968 about the need for power to correct everything that stands against love. And when I read that in my teenage years, you know, it really invited me in to I think a deep active exploration of what that means and what it could look like if I just dedicate myself to questions of equity and justice and use my power to correct everything that stands against love. And you did, and you are. Yeah. I work on it. I, th- I think it's a work in progress. You know, I think we're all, we all have this capacity. I think sometimes we think about these big issues. So obviously, you know, I went on through my academic routes and my advocacy work and my creative work. And people are like, why do you tackle these big issues? You know, this is just too big. Racism, too big. Sexism, too big. Right? Poverty, too big. It's overwhelming. I don't have time for this. You know, all these things that people sort of do to dismiss it without understanding that we are the structures when we, you know, really think about it in a, you know, when we sort of think about the global impact even of our individual actions. And so it's never too big, you know, for me. I don't know if it's just a worldview, but, but, but it's, it's never too big. I like that approach. That's a powerful thing to say because I think it's the expansiveness of this just systemic inequality that keeps a lot of people paralyzed and just sidelined thinking, well, I'm just a person, but I really like what you just said. We are the systems. I mean, we can break a system down to the granular level and look at it in terms of policy by policy, person by person, choice by choice. I mean, it can be dissected and it can be reimagined. This is not impossible. You gave one of the most powerful and insightful TED Talks I've ever heard. And so everybody listening, by the way, after you hear this conversation on the podcast, we will, I'll link to Monique's TED talk. So you can, this is required watching. So you open your talk by telling the audience about a fight that you got into when you were in sixth grade and how the school responded to you. Would you mind telling the story here on this? Yeah, thank you. You know, when I gave the TED talk, I was really thinking about how I could help people understand that even those of us who have, you know, achieved many great things and who, you know, have managed to perform and show up in the world a specific way may not have always started out that way, right? And that the decisions we make, so back to our conversation about the individual decision-making and power that we each hold, it could set an entirely different trajectory if we are intentional about what we do. So I tell the story of being in sixth grade and getting into a fight with this boy who had been taunting me and aggravating me and teasing me for a while. And we were in PE and he stepped on my shoe (laughs) and he refused to apologize. And, you know, I was so upset and filled with rage that, you know, I grabbed him and I flipped him. I, I, I had been studying judo 
<laughs> so it provides a little, you know, comedic moment in the, sure. in the talk for me to show a picture sure. of my little self in my judo gi. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, um, I, I, you know, I threw him to the ground and, you know, the teachers broke up the fight. And I acknowledge in the talk that, you know, a, a simple act of stepping on someone's shoes shouldn't warrant that kind of response, right? And that if someone were to look at that today, they'd be like, Monique, you were overreacting. What's wrong with you? All he did was step on your shoe. It's PE for goodness sake, you know, all these things. And what I share in the talk is that I was really responding to a host of other things that I had been dealing with sexual violence. I'd been dealing with abandonment. I had been dealing with a lot of, you know, both gender-based violence and, you know, sort of structural violence that filled me with rage. And so him stepping on my shoe and refusing to apologize was just the last straw for my little self, my sixth grade self. And so I wanted to fight. And I talk about the difference between, you know, my teacher's response to me and what likely would have happened today, right? Where my teachers came in and of course I got sent to the principal's office and I was like, she would ask me, you know, what happened? You know, like she understood that there were a series of critical questions that she needed to ask me about what was happening in my life rather than say, Monique is a problem child and she has to get out of here. I was not suspended. I was not expelled. I was not arrested. I, you know, I talk about how nothing that I did that day kept me from coming back to school the next day or learning. There was no interruption to my learning, but rather the educators used it as an opportunity to reconnect me to the community that they were building in the school. And they used the things that they knew about me, my love for prints, my love for art, to reconnect me to the community rather than push me away. And that is you know, probably the biggest thing I wanted people to take away from that story is that when young people are in crisis, that's the moment we bring them in closer, not the moment we try to push them away. It's good, yes. So in kind of the opposite world, as I was introducing this episode for my listeners earlier, I talked about some of the data that your organization, the National Black Women's Justice Institute, had analyzed from the U.S. Department of Education in that Black girls are seven times now more likely to be suspended than their white peers and three times more likely to be referred to juvenile court than their white and Latinx peers, which is a clear discrepancy and bias in the way that Black girls are viewed by the education system now, today. And so one thing I'd like to hear you talk through, is this a place where age compression comes in? Can you discuss more about what age compression is and why it's so particularly harmful to to Black girls. So when we look at the data as it impacts Black girls, it is important to note that Black girls are the only group of girls who are disproportionately experiencing exclusionary discipline, you know, the suspensions, expulsions, referrals, arrests, et cetera, across the spectrum of discipline and at every educational level. So when we think about that, it's, you know, for me, every time I say that out loud, I'm triggered in some way because I'm just, I cannot believe that we, well, I can't believe it because I see it, but it's so upsetting. And honestly, I feel disgusting that we have identified a group of girls as disposable, 
and treat them as such. That's right. And so, you know, when I saw the, these numbers, you know, certainly I thought about my own experiences, having once been a Black girl. I'm the mother of two Black girls. I have Black girls around me in everything I do. And it was just sort of like, I know I've also been educated with, you know, non-Black children, right? And so I'm like, I know that Black girls are not the only group of girls that are getting in trouble or that make mistakes, right? I know that all children are going through this process of learning. It's just that some kids have an opportunity to have their actions or their behaviors read as an adolescent or juvenile mistake as opposed to others where it's seen as something that is somehow indicative of a problematic personality or, or character trait that is not correctable and therefore not seen as you know, sort of worthy of intervention. And so that's where we talk about age compression, which is, I think, one part of it. And age compression is a concept that I talk about in the book Push Out and that I spend some more time with in Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues as new studies have come out. And, you know, this tremendous work has been done by Jamelia Blake, Dr. Jamelia Blake and Rebecca Epstein at the Georgetown Center on Poverty and Inequality talking about adultification, where Black girls are basically experiencing a childhood that is truncated and somehow you know, sort of morphed into a young adulthood where there's this intentional or unintentional erasure of one's childhood experiences and the recognition that they are as children developing appropriately or cognitively, you know, in accordance with their their age group. The age compression is really about adult perceptions of young people. And so, you know, that's why I think much of this is about the adultification conversation where, you know, Black girls, the study that Georgetown released showed that Black girls were experiencing, you know, sort of this reading of their behaviors as more adult-like when they're as young as age five, and it peaks when they're between the ages of 10 and 14. And, you know, sort of in the Push Out documentary, we spend some time talking about why that's a problem, because, you know, this is a period where Black girls are experiencing early onset puberty between eight and nine and 10. So there's this tendency to view their bodies as more adult-like and then to treat them as if they are little adults when they're not, right? And when we think of someone as more adult-like, not only does that, you know, as the Georgetown study show that we tend to then as adults read them as needing less nurturing, less protection, and you know, sort of less patience, you tend to have less patience with somebody that you don't have you know, necessarily a, a view of as someone who's in need of more nurturing and, and engagement and comfort. But that this lack of patience, this lack of reading their behaviors as developmentally appropriate can also lead to harsher treatment and engagement when young people do make a mistake. I mean, I think it, it just leads to a lack of empathy. It leads to a lack of interest in exploring what some of the, you know, more culturally competent gender responsive interventions might be for this group of people. Sure. And it really speaks to our intention when we're talking about working with young people. I always bring this up when I'm thinking about like six and seven year old black girls who are arrested for taking candy off a teacher's desk or having a tantrum in class. Yes. Any of us who have been mothers know that Six and seven-year-olds can throw a mean tantrum, right? <laughs> I'm just saying. And we all know that there are better ways to intervene than calling in the cops. Right. Like, imagine you're six and seven-year-old, no. right? You don't want to. No. But exactly. It doesn't make sense to anyone. No one. Under any circumstance. 
Because when I see a six and seven year old, I don't care how quote unquote violent this tantrum appears to be. I'm clear <laughs> that this is a six and seven year old, right? Or a six or seven year old. And I'm clear that there are strategies that I should know in working with young people or being around young people that call upon them to calm down and strategies that engage them and get them to recenter. And all of these things that we know are possible that we use in everyday life as parents, that we use in everyday life as concerned community members and siblings to get someone to calm down when they are having a moment of disruption. Right. It's just the most obvious developmentally appropriate response. And yet so many schools are calling in law enforcement for young people who are having tantrums in class. So I want to talk about that because this is a big deal. This is a big deal, what we're talking about. And I want to discuss for a minute the school to prison pipeline, which is, you know, as you're mentioning right now, we begin to see its origins in kindergarten. You know, this is, we're talking about babies here. Yeah, even pre-K. Pre-K, right. And so I'd like to talk about this school to prison pipeline and what it's doing to kids and communities of color. Can you talk about how this works? and what kind of compounding effects make it harder and harder and even impossible for kids to get out of the pipeline as they age up and then how it affects the community as a whole. We could spend like weeks and weeks on this, (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, let me try to give you a quick version of this. I mean, so the school to prison pipeline is a framework that was developed by advocates to help us understand that there was a clear path between the decisions that are made in schools and the outcomes that are criminalizing to young people and eventually as adults. For me, you know, it represented a very linear way to consider this phenomenon you know, that is impacting so many young people, partially because when we think of a pipeline, we think of, you know, sort of a linear path, a direct path. And so what we were seeing in that framework were the conditions that we see disproportionately impacting many of our young boys and young men, where there would be an incident that occurs on campus that then leads to a citation or some kind of direct contact with juvenile court or with an agent of the juvenile court or probation officer, police officer, security guard, that then leads young people into contact with the juvenile court system and potentially later with the criminal legal system. In my work with girls, and I wrote a piece about this in 2012 that talked about where we could locate girls in this scenario, because we were talking so much about the school to prison pipeline and so many folks were talking about how this impacted black boys and Latino boys. And that was a worthwhile conversation and needs to continue because we still see the disproportionate impact for them as well. But we were losing our girls. And so in my work, I realized that part of the problem was that we were seeing this in two linear a frame that we needed to you know, sort of apply, you know, what my colleague and friend Kimberly Crenshaw calls, you know, an intersectional lens that invites us into explore the ways that race and gender might impact how Black girls specifically are experiencing these conditions. And so in the mapping of that work, I started to identify policies, practices, conditions, and a prevailing consciousness. So what we think about Black girls that render them vulnerable to future contact with the juvenile court or criminal legal system. And so I started to call it school to confinement pathways because I wanted to make sure too that we were talking about girls. When we talk about prison, we're still talking about and you know, primarily privileging the conditions of 
and, and experiences of men. That's who disproportionately are in prison. But when we're talking about confinement, residential juvenile correctional facilities, when we're talking about uh, residential placements, when we're talking about at-home probation and electronic monitoring, that's when we start to see our girls. And so I wanted to make sure that we weren't losing our girls, particularly because their experiences are so intertwined with sexual violence, their experiences are so intertwined with domestic and interpersonal violence that we had to make sure that we were using a framework that makes sense. And I offer that because often when we think about this structure or we think about this you know, pipeline, pathways, you know, way to identify what's happening here, we tend to think about it as something removed from our communities, this distant place with barbed wire and, and this space where we don't necessarily have to see people who have problems, as opposed to really understanding that when we're talking about girls, what we're talking about are the policies and practices in schools. What we're talking about is the structure that we've created in their places of learning that either take them away from their learning or interrupt their learning through the exclusionary discipline that renders them vulnerable to participation in underground economies that can then place them into contact with the juvenile court or criminal legal system, or talking about some of those more linear structures where there are citations on campus that also lead directly to a contact with the juvenile court or criminal legal system. But what's more obvious, um, you know, for me, is that the more routine way that we see our girls showing up in this phenomenon is by way of telling them, you are out of uniform, or I see your bra strap, or I, your shorts are too short, you need to go home. And a lot of girls saying, you know, why are you policing my body or reading my body is somehow provocative in school and therefore denying me an opportunity to learn. And now I'm not going to come to school because I can't be who I am fully in school. And you spend so much time talking about my body instead of what I'm here to do and learn that, you know, this is no longer a safe space for me. Or girls are saying, I can't even show up with my hair the way that it naturally grows out of my head without getting some kind of citation for violation of a dress code. And so I'm now out on the street. Or if a girl even is a fighter and gets into trouble in school, there are not in many places, you know, I mean, there are a growing number of, of ways that schools are responding, which I talk to, I talk about in Singer Rhythm, Dance of Blues. There are ways that we have just sort of found ways to, you know, find creative ways to get kids out of school which is like the opposite of what we should be doing. Right? We should be finding ways to keep them in school, not finding ways to get them out of school. Because I talked to girls who, who were in juvenile detention facilities because you know, they had done various things, were labeled dropouts, all of these sort of ways that you know, they were harmed in our communities. And I asked them, I was like, what do you do when you're expelled or when you're suspended from school, right? If you get turned away from school, what is it that you do? And, Girl after girl after girl in community after community after community would just offer, you know, either I organize to have another fight <laughs> or unfortunately they fall into the victimization of, you know, commercial sexual exploitation. They, you know, become, you know, part of other underground economies that allow them to make money when they need it and they're not you're not participating and, and growing the way that we know they can. And that really maximize, you know, what I think is their true possibility. And they know this. So 
even these girls who, you know, some would say they're not interested in learning. They only come to school to do X, Y, and Z and be disruptive. When I talk to them about what it is that they want, they, no, none of them have ever said school is not for me. What they say is, I tried to go to school, but the community was so fixated on some of these other things that it would just make me so mad that I had to engage in these other behaviors in order to be respected, in order to be seen, in order to be received as a person worthy of someone's attention. So that tells me, you know, we have to, as adults, consider what we're creating in these communities, you know, modify our actions, which is why I set out to move forward with creating material, you know, that can help us do that a little better. And I mean, that's what Singer Rhythm Dance of Blues Education for the Liberation of Black and Brown Girls is about, is, you know, really, you know, allowing us to see the schools, the programs, the strategies that have taken this issue and wrapped themselves around it and are producing different outcomes. I want to talk about that a little bit. And you kind of alluded to this earlier when you discussed your sixth grade experience and the way in which that administration responded to you. I'd like to talk about restorative justice because in so many ways, it feels like the antidote to this school to prison pipeline, actually, frankly, to a host of crimes against the Black community. But for the sake of this particular discussion, let's focus on how practicing restorative justice might work, how it might restore our students and help them and our communities flourish as an opposite approach. Would you talk about what exactly restorative justice is, for those who might not be familiar with the term, and what it could and should and does look like in some of our schools? So restorative practices are, you know, sort of born of some of the indigenous ideas around repairing harm, about understanding what harm has been committed, who committed that harm, and how we make someone whole in repairing relationships from that harm. It is a different paradigm of justice. It's not about the crime against the state. It's not about the authoritative power coming in to declare what will make someone whole, but rather facilitating a process for the person harmed and the person who committed the harm to have a conversation about what needs to happen in order to repair relationship. There's a fundamental understanding that we're connected in community and that even the person who committed the harm is not disposable, right? And that, and that there has to be some way of coming into being with each other that primarily centers the community, not the individual. And so it is an interesting, you know, it's been an interesting way to sort of receive and engage in conversations because so much of restorative practice, I've, I've, you know, was first introduced to it years ago and have been an evaluator of restorative justice programming, have gone into spaces and looked at and supported, created, you know, funding structures for restorative programming, partially because I believe that that is one of the fundamental practices of a participatory worldview. That when we recognize and see, uh, you know, in others, this possibility for the redemption and repair of a relationship, then we're able to recognize that harm is not something that is ultimately about a unrecoverable person, but a repair of an action or, you know, some, some deeper understanding of how we come together in confronting an action that has caused harm from this person. So restorative programming in schools 
oftentimes, you know, will look like the circles that happen in many communities, which I think is probably the preferred modality. It is a singular modality. So I want to share that, you know, that we tend to think about it as the only way that we can have a restorative program. One of the things that I I write about and encourage folks to think about are all the other ways that one can restore relationship. Sure. And also how we do that in a culturally competent way, particularly with black and brown girls. Like, for example? For example, you know, oftentimes when I first started these conversations about, you know, how to sort of locate black girls and brown girls in conversations about restorative practice, you know, folks would say, well, the black girls don't want to go into restorative programming. And I would talk to black girls and they would say, I know I don't want to go into this restorative programming. And I would ask why. And they said it was because they were still so angry that they didn't want to be forced to have a conversation with someone that they were plotting to beat up the whole time sure. that they were in this community. <laughs> right? so, so I was like, well, that's fair, it's honest. And also, if we're being true to restorative practices, it has to be voluntary. You have to be willing to have this conversation. You can't be forced into it. So for those reasons, you know, I started to explore, well, what are some of the traditions in indigenous African and African-American spaces that have been restorative for girls and women that are not currently recognized in some of the structures that we have. And then I started to realize that the hair braiding, dance, art, were part of how, for many, they restore relationships with themselves before they get into the conversation with someone else about the harm that might have been committed. Because when you unpack some of the reasons why there is conflict between and among many of the girls that was leading to the need for a restorative conference in the first place, we were clear that some of, so much of it had to do with internalized depression. And so much of it had to do with some of the other conditions that the single conversation about a harm between two people were not able to deal with. And that depending on the facilitator of that conversation, that facilitator may not even be aware fully of the levels of historical trauma that are informing why girls are behaving the way that they are in certain scenarios, and boys. So in in restorative practice, there's the modality around the circle. There are various other mediation, conferencing, you know, opportunities that happen. There are, I call them, you know, more arts-related interventions that can allow for there to be this new paradigm But also, it's really about providing an opportunity for there to be a whole new way that we understand educational equity. So in Singer Rhythm, Dance of Blues, I talk about, I have a chapter dedicated to exploring restorative solutions. And I talk about some of the ways that other systems are thinking about, or school leaders are thinking about restorative approaches. And the one thing, you know, that I share is that, you know, school leaders who engage in restorative approaches understand that the opportunity to build a strong community can happen only if there are people who are involved in the harm, who can be a part of developing the solution to that harm. That's good. And yeah. ultimately what we're seeking to restore is love. I love the name of your podcast because it centers love in a way that I don't often see. And what's interesting is I'm, if, for those who know me, I'm so not the touchy-feely mm. <laughs> person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> However, I know sometimes, you know, in the way that I talk and the way that I move, I do feel that I, I try to lead with love, but I don't necessarily think that it's about assigning conversations about love to be this, this sort of physical exercise, but rather 
how we begin this process of centering love in our daily practice, in our daily meditation and engagement, in our daily understanding of possibility. And, you know, I, I said this in the TED Talk, it's so important right now when we are guided primarily in our public discourses through this lens of fear for us to embrace love. Mm. I mean, I cannot possibly agree more. I think that is the lost North Star, that it would be a real fundamental solution to so many of our just ailments in our culture right now. And and I like that you said, not this sort of just emotive, squishy concept, but like deeply rooted, deeply centered love as sort of a guide. It, we've lost the narrative. I mean... And, and to recognize too that love does not mean you are the savior of people. That's a good word. I think a lot that's of right. times people conflate saviorism tendencies with love. That's good. And we can't do that. No, gosh, that's a terrible approach. And we'll backfire 100% of the time. I, this is why I love hearing you talk about these restorative practices where everybody involved in the conflict is a part of the solution. A couple of episodes back, we talked about the ideas surrounding defunding the police and what that actually meant. It's a very charged term and why we need to redirect those funds to resources that contribute to actual community flourishing instead of just disproportionate community punishment to counselors, to mental health professionals that have the correct tools and training to actually help in situations where force is not the best reach. So a lot of that discussion centered around the possibility of redirecting funds toward our schools and the communities of color that are disproportionately affected by some of these practices. Does that feel true and right to you? Do you see that as at least one part of a greater solution? Oh yeah. I wrote a piece for USA Today about why police need to not be in schools. You know, I think when people heard the notion of defunding the police, there was this sort of instinctual way that folks responded with fear again and, you know, concern that there would be just rampant violence without acknowledging that in so many ways, the police force is the primary structure of violence and manifestation of violence, particularly in, you know, communities of color, but not exclusively in communities of color. And so um, it is, you know, what we're inviting in this conversation, I think, is an opportunity to consider how it is that we understand safety and how we create modes that you know, are not reliant upon a structure of violence to protect us from folks who have been harmed and who therefore engage in harmful activities. And so it requires us to say, all right, what is it that we think is possible? What is at the root of the behaviors that are problematic? How committed can we be to each other in building communities that do not call in the police for every single thing? Also, you know, it's interesting because as a society, we've just become increasingly reliant upon law enforcement to do things that law enforcement was never trained to do. Which they say. They say. They will say it openly. Like, why? I mean, so I was teaching... And this, this first came to me, you know, I'd, I'd been doing, you know, sort of criminal justice research work for years and was teaching a course, a graduate school course, where many of my students were law enforcement officers who would get into this leadership program 
mostly because they wanted to promote up. So wanted to increase their skill set and certain behaviors. And I remember one school resource officer in my class said to me, you know, she was like, uh, you know, professor, you know, I get called in to break up, you know, dances. I'm here to, you know, make sure there's no violation of law, but I'm being asked to separate two teenage kids who want to dance too close, you know, or she's like, why am I doing this work in this way? I should be you know, doing something else. Now, there are those who would argue that even the something else is not something that they want in their communities, but there is at least this fundamental understanding that the folks who are in schools should be folks who believe in the promise of all children. That's good. The folks who are in schools mm. should be folks who recognize that you don't need a gun <laughs> and a badge to you know, try to get young people to adhere to the rules and policies of the school. I am a co-author of a, of a report with Rebecca Epstein at Georgetown Center on Poverty and Inequality that looked at school resource officers and girls of color and one of the things that we found in this participatory work was that, you know, many law enforcement, first of all, the structure across the country is just so arbitrary and different that there's no uniform way that police even show up in schools. Yeah, 100%. Some, there is a police force that's strictly dedicated to the school. Some, they call in the state troopers to come in. I mean, it's just, it looks different everywhere, which is part of the problem. <laughs> and... Also, you've got, you know, conditions where, you know, there are these folks who have never been oriented to what it is to be a youth development worker coming into schools to do youth development work. Exactly right. So, so we found, you know, essentially that the school resource officers who were good youth development folks who had these skills, who came from communities where they were recognizing the humanity of you know, the young people that they were working with, that obviously they were able to build relationships that were meaningful. And it had nothing to do with the fact that they had a gun and a badge. Of course. What an absurd approach to education. Well, and it also just pointed out to me that the people that we say, you know, they're a police officer and we need those people on the force. Yes. If they're going to be on the force, then they should absolutely have those skills. And we don't need people with a gun and a badge in the schools what we need are more youth development workers, and we need an investment in building that capacity. We talk a lot about empowerment, and a lot of times that's when I say there's this conflation between the savioristic you know, sort of way that we talk about our work as opposed to leading with love. And you know, our sort of savioristic approach is to say we can empower these communities and schools to be responsive to our young, you know, young people of color, BIPOC communities, and that's how we'll do this work. I say, if we're leading with love, what we instead acknowledge is that no single individual can empower another individual or community. But what we can do is work to increase the capacity of that community to be empowered. That's good. This is ultimately about increasing capacity. This is about investing in the structures, policies, investing in the tool set development and the skill set development that can provide the maximum opportunity for that community to thrive on their own terms. They have the brilliance and capacity. They have the brilliance and, and willingness to be a part of this. And they don't necessarily need the dictatorship <laughs> of an external community to decide how that looks. I love that. that yeah, that's, that's part of how we reject this colonial 
way of considering how we build out community. Yes, there's so much possibility yes. in that approach. Yeah, and, and it's co-constructed. So, you know, I talk about safety as a co-construction, not as something that can be implemented. You can never bring in someone else to create safety for you. Safety is something that you experience as someone, ex, you know, who is living in the condition and sort of, you know, surviving in these spaces, as well as the person who, you know, has the quote unquote authority. That's just the right and a revolutionary approach, you know, including yours. There are so many organizations that have been and continue to fight this level of systemic inequality for Black kids and young adults who are putting resources like counselors and mindfulness practices into schools and co-creating together with the student body. I love that approach. Can you, I don't know, can you throw us an example, something that you've seen recently, something you've been a part of, someone we can look to and go, look at this, look at how this is working. Oh yeah. So I've seen so many examples that, you know, that's partly why I had to write them all up in in that Sing Rhythm Dance of Blues, because I think that's partly what we're missing in much of this narrative are the examples of who's doing it differently. You know, about six years ago, I co-founded a school in Alameda County as a partnership with the Mentoring Center and National Black Women's Justice Institute and uh, the Alameda County Office of Education to launch a program that we call Emerge that is about working with girls who have experienced school pushout and who essentially were underperforming in all of the existing alternative learning structures. So we wanted to be the group that could respond to, you know, sort of the last chance, you know, girl, the one that everyone has written off that says she's not going to make it. And we wanted her, right? So we could educate her and graduate her. And, you know, 80% of the girls participated in the program were we're survivors of commercial sexual exploitation. We were getting referrals from the juvenile court. Deep levels of compounded transgenerational trauma. Some girls wouldn't even talk, you know, that the trauma was so great. And we lost one girl to gun violence. But aside from that, you know, we have continued to graduate from high school, these girls, who everyone else wrote off. And that's when I realized, you know, part of the problem is that when we're talking about girls who have experienced school pushout and who, you know, many of our our educational systems sort of dismiss as problem children, is that we don't center enough the sort of primary role that trauma plays in the misbehavior and our need to structure learning in a way that can heal. So... I, you know, routinely will invite schools to think about how they can become locations for healing so that they can become locations for learning the way that we intend them to be. And so, you know, in in that work with Emerge, but certainly I've seen it replicated in other spaces. I talk about the Columbus City Prep School for Girls in the TED Talk and also in the film, the documentary film. There are a host of schools in the South that I have seen who have taken unconventional approaches to working with young people that just say, we are going to center making sure everyone feels loved in this school. And once we have established that young people feel loved, now our work can begin, right? And you know, it's a, it's a departure from the way that I think even five years ago when I would go into communities and, you know, educators would say, you know, Monique, my job is not to be a healer. 
<laughs> and I would say, but isn't it though, right? <laughs> it's not, right? And I was like, because education is healing. Education is freedom work. Education is how we increase the capacity of folks to realize their full potential. So that means you're a healer. And if you don't see yourself as a healer, then that's a problem. Because if you do see yourself as a healer, if you do see yourself as fundamental to this freedom work, then your intentions hopefully can align with actions to create that as, as a norm in the community that, in which you teach. It's about understanding education differently. It's not about creating robots, yeah, right? It's it. about increasing our young people's capacity to see who they want to be. And that's all I got. That's what my education was, right? That's why despite the traumas that I was living with, the adverse childhood experiences, the ACE scores, all these things that I was living with, the critical piece for me was that I had a group of people who understood what I was capable of and who held me to account, you know, when, when I was falling short of that and who understood what I needed in investment, not in saviorism, in investment, right? In, in support, in advocacy, you know, in pushing me sometimes, right? To move beyond. And so you know, we say sometimes those are the, that's the work of the good mentor. Mm, I like that. Right? Yeah. But, you know, I also think that there's a role for all of these amazing teachers who, you know, many of whom already understand that to be, you know, what they do. And that's why they're the most effective sure. teachers. <laughs> they have, have figured that out. Absolutely. I mean, I love those teachers. Me too. I can spot them exactly. immediately. You know who <laughs> exactly. they are. And you know exactly. who the administrators exactly. are too. The administrators. And that's why, you know, I think it's important to even share, right, those stories, because it's hard for educators to hear all of this bad news about education. And I've, you know, been in communities where really when I talk about school pushout, I'm usually in communities where there are mostly teachers in the audience. You know, that gives me joy and brings me life every time, because that means that even in, you know, the work of leading with love, doesn't mean that we're having easy conversations, right? It means that we're willing to put ourselves in the position of having a very difficult conversation, even if we've been a part of that tapestry of harm and how we then correct that harm. So talk about restorative. You know, part of what I offer in my work is that we can't just think about restorative practices as the, you know, sort of repair of relationship between two individuals, that we also have to think about the repair of relationship between individuals and institutions where those institutions have been part of the tapestry of harm and what roles we play in, you know, in that work if we are agents of that institution. So that means we have to make sure we develop relationships with parents. Parents have to understand that you know, there's a lot that schools are working through in this moment, right? And that there needs to be this, this deep commitment to a shared responsibility of caring for young people in a way that can, you know, provide their, you know, sort of best chance. What I love about your work is that it so clearly demonstrates that this is possible, this is possible, even a system that is just kind of rife with inequalities and sort of broken elements, it can be changed. It can be reimagined. It can be reformed. There is no such thing as a last chance girl. Exactly. She has every chance every still. Every chance. And right. It's just, it's exciting to watch. And it fills me with like hope and possibility for what could be. And I think that most of our educators get into it with, I would like to think that most of our educators come into their work 
with this idea that students matter and every one of them has potential. And so there's so much raw material here to work with. Great kids and just so much, so much restoration and possibility. I think your work is so meaningful. Sure. But teachers need support. They do. You're right. Part of it is, you know, a lot of times teachers may enter, you know, obviously there are certain folks who enter every profession that probably shouldn't be there. But for the most part, I really believe that, you know, those who believe in education, who seek to be educators, you know, really do enter with this idea and this appreciation for education as the, you know, sort of tool or a primary tool, you know, to to move someone's life forward. But I do think that somewhere along the way, because of, you know, some of the pressures, the administrative pressures or some of the, you know, ways in which we just undervalue teaching as a profession in our society, the lack of investment in educators, they get tired and they are human beings. And so we have to also reconcile, you know, certainly the biases that we hold as individuals that inform the work that we do, but we also have to think about how we can make deeper commitments to, you know, educators to, you know, support them along this journey. And I'll just offer, you know, that part of a policy conversation is about creating structures that can do just that. I have partnered with Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and Congresswoman Ilhan Omar and Congresswoman Bonnie Watson Coleman to introduce the Ending Pushout Act. That is a federal policy that's pending now that, you know, folks can really take a look at and explore and possibly consider urging your congressional representative to co-sponsor because it does that kind of investment in educators, in schools, in the alternatives that can provide spaces for responding to trauma rather than criminalizing the trauma, particularly for girls and non-binary, you know, by POC youth. Well done. That gave me goosebumps. We're working on it. (laughs) That's great. Oh, that's exciting. So for everybody listening, we will link to literally all of this. Every single thing that Monique has discussed and all of her books and her work and her TED, we'll we'll have all of this in one place for you over on the transcript page at jenheadmaker.com. Okay, I want to wrap this up with you. These are a couple of questions that I'm asking everybody in this series. And so here we go, just off the top of your head. And the first one, obviously, have a million answers. So you'll just have to select. For you, who have been some of your greatest role models? My mother, I have to say, I think um, I'm guided by many community mothers who are also role models for me. I would have to say, in, in many ways, the artist Prince has been a role model for me. Yes. I'll talk about that maybe you know, yes. later, but at another time. I um, love it. And so, and Harriet Tubman, I, you know, I, I love Harriet Tubman and Mary McLeod Bethune as historical figures that have also been role models for me. Those are great answers. Okay. How about this? Who are some of your particular favorite artists or teachers or leaders that you'd like us to be watching and listening to and learning from and supporting right now? Yeah, I think Stephanie Patton in the Columbus you know, City School District is a principal who I want all eyes to follow. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, great. She has a really beautiful way of understanding, you know, what young girls, black and brown girls are experiencing and how to build out educational systems that respond to those needs. Oh, I can't wait to research her. Yeah, I really love her work. You know, my favorite artist is Prince, will always be Prince. I think there's a way that 
he engaged in discussions about mastery and discussions about freedom that we didn't always understand. At the time, yeah. Yeah, at the time, mm-hmm. but kept going and made some unconventional, you know, ways to express it, but has always been, you know, sort of a source of, for me, of uh, challenging normative constructs. And so, yeah, I've, I've deeply loved Prince, sometimes lecture on, you know, the legacy of his work. And so for me, I have to just lead with, with that. That's your guy. <laughs> that's and my, I love your love for him. <laughs> and I love that you've developed lectures around him. It's incredible. Oh, there's a whole Prince scholarship that. community. I'll have to, that'll have to be another discussion. <laughs> <laughs> yes, totally. Okay. Last question. I actually ask everybody in every series, this final question, and please feel free to answer it literally however you want. Big, small, important, not whatever. It's from a faith leader that I love. Her name's Barbara Brown Taylor. Here's the question. What is saving your life right now? What is saving my life right now? I would have to say hope. Hope is saving my life right now. The work that I'm doing with grant makers for girls of color and being able to partner with organizations in communities across the country to resource movement work led by girls of color is probably the greatest gift I could have in this moment. I mean, living at the intersection of multiple pandemics, you know, girls of color are uniquely positioned to explore what's possible. I love that. And I am so honored to lead this organization that can help resource that work. Ugh, fantastic. I have goosebumps. <laughs> I'm oh, lucky. I'm lucky. so good. <laughs> what good work. Golly. I don't think I've ever had anybody say hope before, and I love that answer, and I love the reason for it. So before we pop off here, can you just tell my listeners where they can find you and find your work and find your stuff? Sure, sure. I'm at moniquewmorris.me, but usually more active on social media, Instagram, Monique.w.morris and Twitter at Monique W. Morris and Facebook, Monique W. Morris EDD. And if you're driving and you're like, I didn't get it. <laughs> like I said, we'll have it all linked for you. Do not panic. Thank you for sharing space with me today. Are you kidding me? The honor's <laughs> mine. Like I could listen to you talk for a hundred hours. I'm so grateful not just for the work that you do in this world, but for bringing it into our community and just excited for my listeners to know you and to follow what you do and to imagine how we can co-participate in our school districts and where we're at with our students and our communities. And so thank you for all you do. Thank you for your time today. I'm just incredibly grateful for it. And so delighted to know you and so thankful to have had this incredible conversation with you. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I was just kind of leaning forward in my seat the whole time, just listening and listening and listening. That actually felt very hopeful to me and so encouraging about what is possible for our schools. And so as mentioned, if you go to jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab, we'll have this whole episode for you, including the written transcript and every single thing that Dr. Morris and I talked about. All the links, her books, her TED Talk, the leader she suggested to follow, everything. We'll have it all in one spot for you and really appreciate your 
care and attention to this conversation and also to this whole series. I'm always proud of this community for leaning in to really important work and discussions with a lot of intelligence and attention and intention. And so we'll have all those resources available to you for further reading and further learning. And so glad to put them in your hands. And so on behalf of our podcast crew, so Laura, our producer and her team, and then of course, Amanda and I, Amanda does so much work on the transcript and building out the page at jenhappiger.com, which is an incredible resource. And I hope you're using it. We are delighted to serve you and happy to do it and thankful for such an incredible listening community. Okay, you guys, see you next week.